town Chicago is my kind of town Chicago is my kind of people too People who smile at you and each time I roam Chicago is calling me home Chicago is one town that won't let you down It's my Chicago is my kind of razzmatazz And it has that there jazz And each time I leave Chicago is tugging my sleeve Chicago is the Wrigley building Chicago is the windy city Chicago is the Union Stockyard Chicago is Comiskey Ballpark Chicago is And Wrigley Field Chicago is It's my hometown, yes, Chicago is One town that And you're listening to CITR Radio, FM 102, cable 88.5, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and Denard War, the Human Serviette Radio Show. You just heard right there, Mike Douglas, Mike Douglas, Ronnie of the Muffs, favorite entertainer, Mike Douglas, who is referenced in a book by Dave Bedini, and Dave Bedini is going to be on Denard War, the Human Serviette Radio Show today, and what book does Dave Bedini reference Mike Douglas in? Well, the book called Writing Gordon Lightfoot. Today on the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Dave Bedini. We didn't get him last week, but we connected with him this week, or we're going to connect with him this week, or he promises to be there right now. Right, Dave? Please. Just hang on, Dave. Just hang on the line for one more moment. We heard right there Mike Douglas and a tiny bit of Stranger on the Shore. But we heard a little bit there of... Stranger on the shore, but basically the whole my kind of town. Mike Douglas, thank you, Beppy, again for coming through on this today on the Nardwar Human Serviette Radio Show. Right now, gonna play something by the Frantics and the song Werewolf. And this particular track, uh, last week I played the frantic straight flush, is mentioned indirectly because in the book, Dave Bedini's book, Writing Gordon Lightfoot, he mentions the frantics. The song Straight Flash, so I thought I'd play the other track, Werewolf by The Frantics, another classic track by The Frantics, in which the Cramps actually appropriated a tiny little bit of this for one of their tunes. You just have to listen closely and see how it mixes up with The Cramps. So today in the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show, an interview with Dave Bedini, writing Gordon Lightfoot. You just heard some Mike Douglas right there. And here is, right now, The Frantics from Seattle, Washington, 19. 65 with Werewolf and then Dave Bedini. Even the man whose heart is pure and says his prayers at night can change to a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the full moon shining bright.
are you? Hello, it's Dave Bedini here from Toronto. Dave Bedini, welcome to the Nardwarta Human Serviette Radio Show. Oh, it's great to be back. So, who are you, Dave Bedini, and who is Gordon Lightfoot? Hmm, well, Gordon Lightfoot, he's a tall, denimed Canadian uh, musical hero. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm the guy who wrote a book about him without him. Uh, it came out about a month ago, and, uh, yeah, Gord, geez, no one, it's funny because... Now, there was two, there's one book written about him called If You Could Read His Mind, kind of a bad title, by Maynard Collins. Pretty straight-ahead biography. But then there's the Kathy Evelyn Smith book called Chasing the Dragon, which isn't really a biography of Gord, but it kind of is, because he's in there a lot. However, he's also been described as Canada's Bob Dylan, or you're describing as him as Canada's Bob Marley, or he's a no-hood ornament. He's, yes, it's true. Well... He's a well. He, I think he's just a hood ornament because he was kind of the first guy, really, or the first musician to sing about uh, about Canada. You know, this is back in the days when um, I don't know if you can imagine Canadian radio in 1963, right? It was we were still, you know, very colonial, very loyalist, certainly culturally. Anyways, things hadn't really changed yet. Most of the music that was on the radio, um, even music by Canadian pop bands, was very was super British. It was either that or it was still kind of left over from 50 Swing. Somebody in the book tells me that, you know, at the time that Lightfoot started making records, it was all, all either Frank Sinatra or the Beatles on the radio. So for him to kind of come out, you know, in his denim jacket and his acoustic guitar singing songs about the lake and about trains and about traveling the country and about winter and about snow, uh, you know, we take that for granted now, but back then it was pretty punk rock. It was, it was, it, was, it shattered um, our, the image of ourselves musically, certainly. And Americans might know Gordon Lightfoot from SCTV. The SCTV skit Gordon Lightfoot sings every song ever written by yeah, Rick Moranis. Yeah, that's pretty good. Rick Moranis, uh, well, Rick Moranis was a musician himself in Toronto, and um, yeah, they said at SCTV that the, 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 the program itself got a lot more, there was way more musical stuff on that show when he came in, because that was kind of his specialty, kind of doing musical parodies. You know, he was Jerry Todd, right? He was the video guy, um, and uh, a lot of the musical guests were a result of Rick Moranis, so yeah, it was kind of, like, he did the, um, you know, like, uh, all the farm film blow-up stuff, it was his idea to, like, blow up. Lightfoot, they blew they blew up Anne Murray, they blew up Barbara Streisand. So he was, uh, yeah, he kind of ch- brought that charge into into that program. Dave Bedini, what did you want to do with the book writing Gordon Lightfoot? What did you originally want to do with your book writing Gordon Lightfoot? Well, I guess, well, I don't know what I originally wanted to do because they had a- people had asked me to write that book for a long time and. Well, the story, the story is, I mean, the story that I kind of start the book with, and maybe it's kind of a, little, a lot of people know about it, but I'll repeat it anyways for people who don't, but in 1991, the Rio Statics on our second album, my former band, we recorded Wreck of the Emma Fitzgerald. I don't think we were playing it when we first came out there in 87, but, um, you know, we played this song, and then we wanted to put it on our record. We went to ask Gord's manager for permission, this fellow Barry Harvey, and Barry said that uh, he, we could do it. He gave us his permission, which was cool. And then we asked if we could send a copy of our record to, to, to Gore to hear our version. And he said, no, 
I won't play it for Gordon. It'll just piss him off. So I kind of I felt a little jilted almost, I suppose, thinking, why would this guy not want to hear a version of one of his songs? Then we ended up, I ended up going to Ireland. I met a drunk in a bar in Cork, and I, asked, and I told him I was kind of lamenting that we'd been re- rebuffed by one of our musical heroes. And he said, oh, Lightfoot didn't even write that song. It's uh, based on an old Irish melody. And I now realize he pretty probably pretty much said that to everybody in ev- any bar who brought up any song that wasn't Irish. Um, but I came back home, and the Toronto Star asked me about the song, and I said, well, it's not really Gord's. It's based on an old Irish rap melody. So he got really mad. Um, and uh, and so when it came time to write a book, bo- people asked me to write a biography or write a book about him, I said, well, I can't really write a book about him because he's mad at me, and he wouldn't participate in the project and then my editor said well why don't you write him a letter to appeal to him which i did and then when i showed him a co- showed my editor a copy of the letter which was never responded to ultimately she said that's a really great piece of writing why don't you write a few more so i ended up writing basically a bunch of letters to him and that sort of forms kind of the, the basis of the book are you glad that gordo gordon lightfoot said no because you got all these great stories like if he said yes maybe you wouldn't have got all these great stories yeah i mean i kind of like to think that even if i had sat down with him and, and talked to him i would have been able to you know craft something that would have been interesting and exciting and innovative but you're kind of right it's sort of push me to kind of solve this riddle, solve this problem. And and, and in doing so, um, it, I came up with a really kind of, you know, a different way of, 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 of um, you know, writing a kind of meta-biography about him. I came up with a whole other approach of illuminating and telling his story uh, through through these through these letters and, uh, and other techniques in the book. And Gordon Lightfoot now knows about the book because quote he learned about it from <laughs> quote some guy from the gym. Some guy from the gym. I know. Go figure. I guess he was on the treadmill, you know, working out in the heavyweights and whatever. And somebody said, "Yeah, I mean, I think he. I mean, it's tough to it's tough to know like at what point where Gord is sort of at in his life in terms of." how aware he is or not of sort of, you know, of what's going on in Canadian music and Canadian arts and that sort of thing. But, you know, we live in the same city and, you know, my book's kind of been everywhere here. It's been in the paper a lot and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I'd, I mean, I'd like to think that he is he's certainly aware aware of it beyond just some guy in a gym telling him about it. But I personally would like to think that he learned from the guy in the gym. That makes it even more awesome. It is kind of awesome, you're right. And Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot, really, the book is about, you have mentioned in past, about a week in 1972. Could you set the stage with the events of that week? Because the book is not just about Gordon Lightfoot, it's about really a week in 1972. Yes. What was going on there? Like, I never knew about the Pioneer 10 Navy. Naked controversy. Please explain. Right. So, uh, okay. Well, that's now. Yeah. Let me. Okay. So I'll set the scene a little bit. So, so I was, you know, researching Lightfoot's life when I found out. I found, I discovered this remarkable event that happened in 1972 in Toronto, and the event was the Mariposa Folk Festival. It happened July, the weekend of July 16th to the 18th, and that festival um, in 1971. Actually, they had a lot of problems with that festival. There was kind of a mini-riot that happened in 1971, and the riot, believe it or not, Nardware, was caused by the appearance, surprise appearance of James Taylor, which has to be the first time James Taylor ever would have incited a riot. And I think it was a small R riot at the time. I mean, maybe a snow fence was kind of kicked over. Um, somebody fell in the water. Like, it was very, very small. But nonetheless, it kind of freaked out the very idyllic, uh, idealistically minded um, organizers of the event. 
in. So they said 1972, we're going to make sure that there's no kind of incident whatsoever. So they they canceled all evening performances. Um, they refused to book any kind of name acts, any headliners. The only de facto headliners were Bruce Coburn and Mary, Mary McLaughlin, who were quite, you know, relatively, you know, small, uh, fo- uh, not so widely known as terms of folk superstars or whatever. They were, they were still starting out in their career. They also did this thing where they had five stages going. It was the first time ever there was a festival that had more than just one stage. It had always just been one main stage, so they had five. So they would kind of, you know, um, cut up the crowd a little bit. Nobody could amass in great numbers in one spot. So they had this all settled. They, they were so confident things were going to go well in 72 that the organizer of the festival, Estelle Klein, went on holidays in Greece, so confident it was going to go off without a hitch. Well, as it turned out, this festival, four, like, really, the greatest songwriters of the generation showed up unannounced to play. Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Gordon Life, and Bob Dylan, they all showed up in this small island in Toronto to play. So I started to research into that event. And I found out that not only did this happen in Mariposa that weekend, but the Rolling Stones were in town with Robert Frank and Truman Capote and Stevie Wonder opening for two shows at Maple Leaf Gardens. And that was days before they actually went to Montreal, where their equipment truck was bombed by the FLQ um, as they were waiting to set up for their show. And it was a notorious exile tour. So the plot kind of thickened when I examined the events in this city of, 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 you know, of that weekend. And then as I went to research the week, I found out that through through the week there were all these remarkable events that I was aware of culturally in Canada and the world that it all happened within the span of seven days. The week started off with um, the total eclipse of the sun. On Monday, it was the largest jailbreak in Canadian prison history. Fourteen inmates escaped out of Kingston. There was a dragnet right across southern Ontario and a manhunt for all these prisoners that escaped. Um, Team Canada 72 was announced the next day, the team that would go on to play the Russians. The Fischer-Spassky chess tournament started. Um, the Pioneer 10, as you mentioned, spacecraft... Um, was about to penetrate the asteroid belt around Jupiter, was going to go farther into space than any spacecraft that had come before it. Um, all these remarkable events happened. So I was able to kind of, I, in the book, I, I reconstruct the events of that week leading up to Mariposa and alternate with the letters that I've written to Gore, just kind of evoke a time and, and talk about Lightfoot's life as it was in that period. Did any of Gordon Lightfoot's friends try to block the book at all? Um, it's funny, like, no, uh, you know, um, even people that I thought would maybe give me a bit of trouble in terms of people he play, played with, they were all more than willing to talk to me. And, and I guess, I mean, part of them, uh, many of them were sort of familiar with my, you know, books and familiar with the music. So it wasn't like I was coming at them sort of coldly, you know, as a writer for a music paper or something. Um, I think they all kind of knew that the story in my, like, they they they, um, they knew I wasn't a dick, you know. They knew I wasn't gonna, you know, this wasn't gonna be like a chop job. I wasn't gonna try to, you know, t- tear apart this legend. I was gonna be partly, you know, I was gonna be mostly respectful, um, and I was, if not respectful, at least I was going to. I can I can sort of understand the kind of dark places that he's gone to, the kind of life that he's lived. So I was able to sort of treat it with a certain with a certain respect, I suppose. And they, and and it was fine. And in fact, Lightfoot's manager, Bernie Field. Fielder's his best friend, who I was told to not talk to because he's very protective of Gord. He came to the launch and ended up being a great guy and stuff. And I haven't heard from him what his reactions to the book is, but um, but he was perfectly respectful to me when I met him and stuff. So yeah, there was none of that, and I expected a little bit of that, but it ended up being okay. 
Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot. What about photographers? Did any photographers refuse to give their photos for the book because you have some amazing photos? Maybe you didn't need anybody if anybody wanted to block their photographers, their photos given to the book. But did you have any trouble getting photos at all? Like people didn't want to give their photos. And can you tell the people about some of the great photos that you have in Writing Gordon Lightfoot? Yeah, the photos are by Art Usherson, who lives in um, Georgia right now. And he uh, was photographer in Canada and Toronto for many years, right up until the late 70s. And he's got a great archive online and stuff. And that was partly, um, you know, I had to contact, I had to find Art uh, and contact him and, and get him to, um, you know, uh, get just get him on board in terms of the book and stuff. But yeah, there's w- wonderful photos. And there, there, there are a few sources for photographs of that weekend, but it's really interesting in terms of there's no sound recordings of the Neil Young set or the Joni set of Gord playing. There's no, you know, moving images of Dylan on the island. It was so different in 72. Like, right now, well, first of all, I don't really think that thing kind of could happen in a festival that small, you know. Um, but but not only that, you know, everything would be documented. Everything would be recorded. But because it happened before the age of, you know, instant digital communication or even camcorders, they didn't really... Didn't people you know people didn't own that sort of stuff in '72? It would have been you know Super 8 cameras. So it, there was no footage that I found anywhere. There's a few shots, uh, you know, flicker shots that are online of people who are at that festival, but not even much of that. But that I think gives the event even more kind of an ethereal quality, all more sort of an abstract, mysterious quality of something that might have been conjured out of the imagination. And in fact, a lot of the stories that people told me of their you know, memories of that time, they had to kind of qualify their memories, qualify their statements by saying that, you know, there was a lot of a lot of drugs, there was a lot of MDMA, there was a lot of grass. So not only these people, a lot of these people in their 60s right now, but some of them are kind of uncertain whether a lot of stuff that they told me really happened. But uh, but it gave a kind of a magical property because of because of those memories. Yes, I like some of those clarifications in the book, Dave Bedini, and are speaking here to Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot, where you'll interview someone and they'll say, well, that was the first and only time I did Angel Dust. I right. love that. Like the yeah. First, oh, oh, yeah, right. The first and only time. Yeah, exactly. But Dave Bedini, speaking of talking to people, did you put a call out for people that knew Gordon Lightfoot? Like, how did you find Brent Titcomb? Yeah, let's see. I don't really know how I found Brent. Um, I, I think it was often what happens, it really, in, in kind of every book that I write, um, somebody will tell me a story, and then they'll say, well, you know, if you want a really good story, you should talk to that guy. So it's kind of neat how it all kind of, you know, it's like dropping um, like a drop of, of, of paint, you know, like on a wet, wet piece of parchment, how it kind of spiders out. That's how it kind of works in terms of finding people. It's this really kind of interesting, you know, a spidery kind of crooked path. One source leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And um, with Brent, I'm not sure. He, You know, maybe Colin Linden told me to talk to him, but it was, you know, and I really didn't know what I was walking into when I talked to Brent. I, I had no idea that, you know, the kind of story that that he would have that uh, that kind of story to tell me. And, you know, for people who haven't read the book, he was the first musician to ever play on stage at the Glastonbury Festival in, in the UK because he was, well, I mean, it's a very convoluted, long story. Don't I can't get, you know, I couldn't tell at all, but he ended up, ha- he had to go to England because he had to save his wife who had basically fallen in with the Rolling Stones um, 
their entourage uh, that that year. And um, while the Stones were away, she was there. Um, the, uh, the house they recorded in, there were a lot of hangers-on, people who just stayed. She ended up staying to try to take care of the place, but she ended up being engulfed in this quite a bad situation. So he had to go there to sort of rescue her. But on his way there, he went through England, and he ended up falling in with this druid mystic and these people who asked him if he wanted to go to this new music festival that was happening. He went there. It was rainy, muddy, and windy. There was no shelter. So he built like these lean-tos, which he'd learned to build in the forests of northern British Columbia. And he was this god among these young British hippies. And um, he ended up, uh, they ended up, they needed to test the sound system. So they said, anybody here a musician? And Brent was like, yeah, I play. So he ended up getting up on stage and, and, and testing the sound system. The first person to ever perform at Glastonbury. And then that, that was the first year of the festival. And we know what it's gone on, you know, its reputation now is, you know, obviously he, legendary. So, yeah, I, I love that, you know, sitting down with people and you're never really sure, like, what you're going to get. And as you know, Nard, where sometimes you get nothing, right? And you kind of... Did he get his wife, though? That was the important thing. Did he rescue his yeah, wife? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He ended up coming back to Toronto with her and going straight to Mariposa right after he landed. And he remembers playing his set. He remembers telling, you know, the crowd, listening. I was in Kent, England about eight hours ago. And he remember playing the set. You know, he was very tired. He hadn't slept. And he remembers walking down the stairs and coming up to him. The first person he saw after after leaving the stage was Joni Mitchell. So, yeah, he, did, he, he got her back, yeah. Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot, how much of the book is truth? Because you say it's not all truth in the book. You've made a bit up. But I was curious, like there's some convicts. You mentioned the prison yes. break, and there's some dialogue. Did you interview the actual convicts, or did you make up their dialogue? Yeah, a lot of it is invented. I mean, there's a fictional component to it, which is something I'd never had before. No, I think, we, yeah, no, I... I kind of, you know, I imagine the conversations between, you know, the, the the older convict and the younger convict kind of trying to keep up. Um, yeah, no, a lot of that was just, you know, me imagining what had happened. You know, imagining the times, imagining the figures. Well, what about uh, the Gabriel Lalande murder and Rudolf Ness? Those were real characters. Those are real. Right? Yeah, a lot of that is based on. Um, based on, yeah, for sure, all of that stuff, I would never invent something like that. You know, that was all based on fact, for sure. Can you tell more about the Gabriel Lalande murder? I'm tr- you know what? I, I, I'm trying to remember which one it was. Um, there's so many of them in the book, and I, I haven't read it for a bit, but which one was that? I think it was related to the prison break where the guy Rudolf Ness ended up back at his house. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that is... Um yeah, that's all documented. Those, that's right. Those were the two guys who were, they were uh, spotted, if, uh, I, they were spotted, was it in Ottawa or Pembroke, maybe? That's right. Um, and they found, that's right, they found the body of someone, the, their cars had been spotted at some point outside this fellow's house. And then that's and they, they they later found the car and there was evidence of this murder. Yeah, that was the amazing thing that week, you know. And seriously, like people within southern southern central Ontario were terrified. Like even people who were miles kilometers away from the scene of the crime locked their doors because they didn't know none of these fourteen men had been found. I mean, one or two of them had been arrested 
caught after about four or five days, but they were on, they were at large. They were on the lam, and it's remarkable in some instances. Like the youngest um, convict, the the young youngest prisoner to escape, uh, ended up going the furthest. He was found in his parents' uh, his, his bedroom in his parents' house in Niagara Falls. Um, nobody knows to this day like how he was able to get there. Uh, you know, get through this dragnet. Um, you know, twelve hundred RCMP officers countless police locking down every highway um, and you got to remember in 72 in Canada with the exception of a few kind of events that sort of stuff didn't really happen it was a very sleepy place at least where I grew up around here um, so to have like an event of that magnitude sort of drop itself on the press the, there was almost the press was almost hysterical their reaction to it and and the people in this in this this part of the, the country were, were, were horrified. Dave Bedini, your book, Writing Gordon Lightfoot, is, quote, printed using ancient forest-friendly <laughs> papers. That sounds like they ripped down a rainforest for it. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Yeah. I No, I think what they're trying to get at is it's recycled, I guess, from that. But I ancient forest-friendly papers. Ancient <laughs> sounds like ancient rainforest. forest Friendly. I don't know. Maybe it's just paper that's been lying around in the factory for a lot. That's a good question, Ira. I don't know. And on page 59 of your book, you mentioned Damien of the band Fucked Up. I do. I love how you fit Fucked Up in with Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah, I had actually had Diamond Rings in there, and then my editor said, Who's Diamond Rings? And I was like, I kind of had to explain. And then, so I put, I put Damien in there because, you know, he's a cool dude, he's smart. He's in a great band. He's all tattooed up. Kids love him. I thought he would be a good uh, kind of figurehead for that. And, of course, Dave Bedini has to put Rush and Hockey in the book, of course, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and to be honest, I didn't really want to have to put any hockey in there, but um, the events did happen that week, so, uh, you know, it was kind of one I had to go down. And Rush, like, I talked to Getty. I mean, I guess I kind of brought Getty in there because... Um, he was at the, the the rock and roll revival, the the the, the um the, the the first ever performance by the Plastic Ono Band in Valvarsi Stadium. He went there with Rush's old drummer John Rutsey, so he had very profound memories of of the event. And I love the documentation you did of the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival, like Russ Gibbs' role, Russ Gibb. Who? Oh, Russ Gibb. Yeah, he's the DJ. Is that right? From Detroit. Yes. Who? Who he? That's right. He played a radio conversation between the organizers of the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival and one of John Lennon's um, assistants. Because people didn't believe that Lennon was going to come and play in Toronto. Because why would Lennon come to Canada? Why would he come to Toronto? Why would he come to this place to, to, have it, to make his first appearance out of the Beatles? Why would he come to sleepy Canada? Um, so they had... So they had to prove to people that really John Lennon was going to come and do this. And as soon as they played this radio broadcast, because tickets hadn't sold well for this event, even though the Doors were part of it, and Chuck Berry and all these crazy bands, Crazy World of Arthur Jones, um, is that Arthur Brown. Um, but uh, once they played this radio bit, yeah, everybody started to, to buy tickets and, and come to the show. And Mustard and Rodney Bingenheimer. That freaks me out. Like... Uh, yeah, that's right. Rodney Bingenheimer and Kim Fowley were both, they kind of emceed the event. And it blows my mind that Rodney was there, because I didn't know that he would have been just part of 
sort of things, you know. And Rodney was such a, you know, interesting and different dude. I really like to think of that group, you know, in Toronto in 1969. Like, even though Yorkville was happening, it was a very straight place. But right, Rodney at one point got condiments. I don't know, I guess they had buckets of condiments. I can't remember. Like the big old mayonnaise containers. And he was painting, painting these naked women in condiments right in the crowd uh, the day of the show. Did you think about speaking at all to Rodney or Kim Fowley? Yeah, well, I didn't because I didn't want that. I mean, listen, I think a whole book could be written about that actual episode. But because that was merely kind of a fragment in the in the in the sort of the overall narrative of the book, I didn't really want to go too far down that road uh, for fear that that event would have kind of engulfed the entire book. But I still think it's kind of cool and great that Gordo said no because we got to learn about the mustard and Rodney Binghamheimer, right? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Are all the people you interviewed completely real? Um, yeah, everybody. Yeah, everybody. I everybody in that book. Um, the only the, the the main the main elements of fiction come in the sort of imagining of Lightfoot's life, basically. I was able to justify and verify that the people were real because you interviewed Al Mayer. Yes, they did, absolutely. And he mentioned the band The Frantics from Seattle, Washington, and playing one of their songs. And I thought, The Frantics, that can't be somebody that you've just made up. Like, <laughs> he's actually mentioning a real band. And I've played them on the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show. They have a great song called Werewolf. What can you tell the people about Al Mayer and how he fits in with your book? And we're speaking here to Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah, I, I knew, I've known Al a little bit over the years, but... Al's an interesting dude. Um, he, I think he's probably foremost still, despite the fact that he managed Lightfoot through the 70s, he's still known as the guy who started Attic Records. You know, and for people who don't know, Attic Records in, in the 80s, late 70s and early 80s, was one of the most interesting record labels, I think, in the world. You know, they would put out records, they put out records, for instance, by... You know, the soft, they put out Underwater Moonlight by the Soft Boys. They put out uh, the first, uh, first four or five Anvil records. Um, Katrina and the Waves, um, uh, Teenage Head. Um, just like a very esoteric, strange, you know, uh, enthusiastic rock label. Um, and all the kind of great and not great bands were sort of side by side. Al did a really good job of collecting them. And, you know, it was the first, one of the first labels, now probably the first label that I could go down to when I was 15 and 16 years old. And they would actually give me records to review. You know, even though I was, you know, would have been writing for fanzines or small magazine or papers, whatever, or my high school paper at the time, they were really respectful for me, to me, right? And I actually have friends there who ended up, you know, becoming like A&R and PR dudes who started, you know, in, in, you know, driving around skids of records in the factory and stuff. So that's Al's thing. But he even goes way back to the days of early Toronto rock when he would go and sell 45 to like cigar shops. You know, the only place you could buy records on Queen Street were, 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 was in like a cigar shop, which he talks about. And he had a a little uh, turntable installed in his car so he could drive around and listen to records. So he's kind of a, he's a legend in that sense. And, and um, you know, uh, even though he didn't really want to go on the record too much about Lightfoot, uh, he was really interesting to talk to because he was there at the very beginning. 
And he also turned me on, and you're writing about Almayer, and we're speaking here to Dave Bedini from Writing Gordon Lightfoot, also turned me on to Ricky Corvette, the world's tallest stripper from Onaway, Alberta. Pretty good, eh? Six eight. I love you're able to fit that in there. Yeah, yeah. And there's another one that that's right. Dave McMillan or Doug, Doug no Doug McClement tells a story of um, Ricky Corvette, and he also tells a story of uh, playing uh, his band uh, Country Comfort playing before a strip act where the stripper came out of a coffin, um, sort of a screaming Jay type thing, but. Yeah, there's there was a, it was great to kind of get get all of that sort of early, you know mid '60s uh, Canadian Canadian rock and roll lore out of that for sure. What was that Roger Fell thing about the telephone pole? Roger Fell, could you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, he um, yeah he uh, Roger Bennett, I think was his name. He um, well, it was just a news item I found out I found in the Toronto Star something that had happened that week. Um, and as you know, you know, there was this total eclipse of the sun. So people, that week started in a, with a very, set a very strange tone for the week because people were kind of freaked out a little bit by, you know, the sky is going to go completely black in the middle of the day. And, and, um, so I, I, I kind of had this theme, uh, this conceit throughout the book where, you know, the, the world was almost on the verge, somewhere between light and dark because all these, you know these um, uh, these these culturally significant events were sort of emerging. It was strange times, but anyways, he was a kid on his 18th birthday who wanted to go. Um, he wanted to go parachuting. He wanted to jump out of a plane, and uh, he did. And and uh, his parents were there, and they were terrified. And, and anyways, the wind currents ended up pushing him, and he ended up basically landing on these telephone wires right at the sort of the, the confluence of these telephone wires crucified, basically, and he ended up surviving. Um, he ended up having to spend his 18th birthday in the hospital, and many days afterwards, he had burns on his body. But, yeah, so, you know, it was, I just I found all these strange little events in the, in the newspaper, and I sort of put them in there, the kind of minutia of, of, of what happened that week, as well as the larger stuff. And as well as bringing back Rush and mentioning Rush playing an insane asylum, which I did not know about, yeah, Getty in an insane asylum. <laughs> Maybe they've always been playing in that insane asylum, eh? Baboom! Rush, yep. you also brought back some crowbar stories and the PM and a joint. Could you please explain a bit more about that, Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot? The Prime Minister of Canada joints a rock and roll band? Well, yeah, let me... Can I tell? I want to tell the insane asylum story just quickly. I mean, yeah, they, they, they Rush got in trouble through the musicians' union um, because they played a, a gig that wasn't sanctioned so by the union. So back then, the union could actually penalize you if you took these non-union shows. So they were they would have kicked them out of the union if unless they played this one set at the mental hospital in Toronto at 999 Queen Street um, so they went there and they played and uh, it, you know they were playing to people who were screaming while they were playing and uh, people were getting up and having all kinds of fits and it was harrowing for them and Getty remembers leaving this, the venue and uh, one, one of the one of the people who were in the asylum ended up trying to escape with them into their van. Um, it really freaked the band out. They 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 made a getaway. But um, uh, yeah, so the story about um, Pierre Trudeau was that 
Margaret, uh, whenever Crowbar would come to Vancouver, Margaret would go and see them. Margaret really loved this band, Crowbar. Kelly J was the front man. And, um, Margaret Trudeau. Yes, uh, whatever her her name was, Margaret uh, Sinclair. Yes, so she would. She was a kid out there, and she loved the band. And 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 so when she got married, her and, and Pierre got married. She was like, Pierre, you got to check out this band, Crowbar. And Pierre was like, All right. So um, they ended up. Yeah, there was an event. Uh, I can't. Remember, I think it might have been might have been in Perth, Ontario, where. Um, and they were playing, and 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 Maggie and, and Pierre went there, and Crowbar had been given a letter uh, to give to Pierre by the mayor of Hamilton. Um, so they steamed open the envelope, and they put two joints in, and they 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 knew that Trudeau would always, you know, just whatever he was given, he would pass off to his uh, one of his assistants. So when Kelly J gave him the envelope, he said, "Here, Pierre, you know this is something for you. You know you might want to look inside before you give give this to your assistant." So Pierre opened the envelope, saw the two joints, took the letter out, gave the letter to his assistant, then folded the envelope, uh, it, it rolled it together, and then put it in his in his in his uh, breast pocket and kept it kept the joints for himself. So eyewitness account of the you know the grooviest um, head of state to, to, to ever to ever reign in the in the Western world, I think. As documented in Dave Bedini's Writing Gordon Lightfoot, and we're speaking here to Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot, and it's so great. The book is called Writing Gordon Lightfoot and yet we're not really talking about Gordon Lightfoot right now, are we? Uh no, well that's the thing. I mean that's what the great thing about, you know, about books or really anything is that and so, I mean we're not and it's not like we're not talking about it because no no it's cool no it's yeah. actually in the book like I love that there's so much in the oh. book that's not about Gordon Lightfoot it's right, awesome right well and actually people have some people have been quite upset by that to be honest people have come at it expecting to read an entire kind of biography about Lightfoot, but but as, like you said, there's a lot of other elements as well. Like, one person posted on Amazon, you know, why am I reading about all these prisoners? I want to read about Lightfoot. So a lot of people feel feel che- cheated partly, but it's a better book, I think, because there's all those other elements. Well, Dave Bedini, I liked reading about the Lords of London, Cornflakes and Ice Cream, a Canadian garage classic, and Pasta, which Mith Mitch Mitchell. Yeah, that's right. Sebastian... Um, uh, Angelo, who was uh, the guitar player in in Lords of London, they had a like a week to end all weeks. They um, they the one one I think on the Thursday they opened for Frank Zappa and the Mother's Invention, the Masonic Temple, and then on Saturday they opened for Jimi Hendrix and the Experience in Maple Leaf Gardens. And uh, that's right, the, they got they had gotten over the border, the experience, and Jimmy had, and uh, they were kind of jonesing. So um, they found them some pot. Um, then they ended up going to Yorkville together. And the thing, one of the things that I don't talk about in the book, because he didn't want me to put it in there, but I can tell you, was that I guess a relative of his has had mule 500 hits of synthetic um, LSD, I think, um, uh, up from Detroit. So they had a whack of them, so they all did this after the set. Actually, I think the experience did it before the set, and he remembers Mitch Mitchell fall, almost falling off his drum kit at one point. But anyways, they ended up going to Yorkville, and <clears throat> Mitch Mitchell said to him, you know, I'm kind of hungry. Is there anywhere to, anywhere to get any food? And again, Toronto, in like the late 60s, there were no 24-hour restaurants, nothing, right? Things would close. So Sebastian was like, well, we go to my mom's place. You know, ah, she's She's a pretty good cook. So they went to his mom's place like 2.30 in the morning. Sebastian's an Ita- Italian. Mom got up. Sure. No problem. I'll fix you boys something. Made him pasta. And they all sat around and ate. You know, Mitch Mitchell, wildly haired, you know, crazy, crazy, you know, dressed, 60s 
60s, sitting in Sebastian's mom's kitchen eating pasta. And before Mitch Mitchell died, he sent an email to Sebastian saying, you know, I don't remember a lot about the 60s and playing with Jimmy, but one of the things I do remember is your mom's pasta. So, the, like, yeah, I, again, like, you sit down and talk to people, and you never expect these kind of stories to find you, but, but they do. Of all the books that you've done, Dave Bedini, these are the most names that have been named, isn't it? Like, there's tons of names. You're putting yourself out there. The number of people that are mentioned in the book, it's incredible. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think in, I think in On a Cold Road and then Best Game You Can Name, those are the other two books that, you know, involve, like, serious, have a serious, you know, sort of second element of other voices that I kind of bring in. But, um, yeah, it's it's neat, you know, <clears throat> having those figures, like, you know, having Hendrix and having Lennon and having Dylan and having Neil and having Joni and having Bobby Hall and all of these people and Trudeau, you know, in the book, have a presence in the book. And the um, poppers, the poppers. What can you tell the people about the poppers and Linda it, McCartney and Linda McCartney? Yeah, I was kind of interested in the poppers because people had always said they were the great Canadian band that has never really been, they're not part of the firmament, right? When you when you look at bands that, you know, who were influential, but, it, but they were, um, from what I understand, one of the most influential Canadian rock bands of all time. I mean, Geddy Lee says, you know, he plays the way he does because of... Um, Denny Girard, the bass player. Um, and uh, Skip Prokop was this electric drummer. You know, he played drums that, you know, uh, well, he was as exciting, a dr- the most exciting drummer next to Keith Moon, people say. He was an amazing player. Um, and they had these wild, wild songs that would be, they were, they were not, uh, Arcade Fire in their own way is a lot like the Poppers, and they would blow televisions up on stage, and they were everything. But yeah, they ended up going to... Um, to New York to play it open for the Jefferson Airplane, I think it was, and photo- they were photographed by Linda McCartney, uh, Linda Eastman at the time, and uh, for for whatever reason they just never were able to put it together. But they were um, they're a fascinating band. On to Gordon Lightfoot with Dave Bedini, author of writing Gordon Lightfoot. I've played and continue to play tracks from the Two Timers LP, right. the Two Toners. What you gonna say about the two timers, the two toners? That's funny, you know, like because that was the band that with Danny Whale and that uh, that um, Gord, you know, played him before he actually found his voice, right? And it just, I think it's actually in a way, kind of even for musicians, kind of encouraging to know that you know you, you start out as an imitator, before, you know, it can take a while before you actually can find your own thing, can find your own voice, and. Uh, that was kind of the case with Gord, you know. They had to, he had to kind of get that out of his system before he could really know who he was. And yeah, that band would have played, you know, back in back in the '60s. There weren't like rock clubs really at all, as we as we know them. You, you had to take your gigs wherever you could get them. In a lot of cases, it was high schools. A lot of cases, it was legions. Or in the case of Southern Ontario, in cottage country, it was like lodges, basically. You know. Um, in, in, in north, central northern Ontario. Um, and that's where he, that's where they got their start. That's where Lightfoot got his start. Lightfoot in California. Have you ever heard any of the recordings that he did there in the 50s? Like, supposedly he sang some commercial jingles? Yeah, I never have. No, I haven't. And he's funny. He, he covers his tracks very well. Um, there are no... There's no um, footage either of the BBC program that he hosted um, in the 60s. And I almost wonder whether he got a hold of them and he 
he suppressed them or he erased them because they were apparently not very good. It's really, you know, it was hard. There's not a lot, surprisingly, there's not a lot of archival stuff. Dave Bedini, Bobby Hall, hockey. Who was Bobby Hall? And is it true, for people that don't know who Bobby Hall was, well, I don't know if they should be listening to Nardware, the Human Serviette radio show, if they don't know who Bobby Hall is. Actually, we encourage everybody to listen to Nardware, the Human Serviette radio show. Please listen to Nardware, the Human Serviette radio show. And you're listening to the Nardware, the Human Serviette radio show with Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot, Bobby Hall, the hockey player. People protested that he didn't make it on the Team Canada, the Team Canada for 72. 23,000 people marched in the streets because a hockey player did not make it on the team. Is that true? It's pretty crazy. I'd forgotten that. I mean, I was eight in 72, so I kind of have a faint memory of it. But yeah, Bobby Hall signed with the World Hockey Association, the WHA, as a member of the Winnipeg Jets, the team that was named for him because his nickname was the Golden Jet. Um, he, uh, because he signed with the WHA, Team Canada did not name, was, he wasn't allowed to play on Team Canada because that was largely, the, the people didn't know it at the time, but it was um, the NHL. The only way the NHL would grant the release of their players was if it was strictly an NHL team because they were threatened because of this new rival league. So Bobby Hall was left off, and Claude Neon, the billboard magnate, um, he put up 300 billboards overnight that said to Hull with Russia um, as, a, as a way of trying to get him, get Bobby Hull and the team. I think 13,000 people marched in Edmonton, of all people, of all places, rather, to try to get him on the team. Um, there was, yeah, huge controversy nationwide. And again, like, that th- what we were largely a very kind of sleepy, you know, um, compliant people at that time. The, there wasn't a lot of rebelliousness, but yeah, I mean, it was took a sort of a this hockey event, I suppose, or this event to um, really engage people. And there were that's right, there were protests in the street to try to get him on the team. You said in the book twenty three thousand people. Did I? Yeah, twenty three thousand. Yeah, I thought that was 23,000 total, but it could have been that many in, in one place. It's true. The Mariposa Folk Fest, 1972. What was the official lineup for the Mariposa 72? It was a lot of blues artists, right? What was the official lineup? Oh, well, there was, you know, there was like 35, 40 performers. I can't name all of them, but I know that, you know, two of the two of the people who played were Bonnie Raitt and John Prine. It was Bonnie Raitt's first time ever in Canada. Um, it was John Prine's second, ta- second time. He'd only... You know, it's funny, the shots of him in the book, he's this kind of baby-faced kid. But he, it would have been his second time uh, playing. His first album would have just come out. He would have just been on The Tonight Show for the first time, managed by Paul Anka, which I didn't know. So it would have been those two. It would have been John Allen Cameron. It would have been, uh, like, big boy Arthur Crudup, who was a blues singer. It would have been a couple of other blues singers, some Inuit throat singers, uh, maritime fiddlers, uh... Doug Kershaw played, um, Leon Redbone was booked to play. So, yeah, not, like, again, like, not really big names, but that was sort of would have been the, I think, it, recognizable names, probably, uh, the, of, of the people who performed. And then you had the unannounced element, which was Neil and his gang, right? He, yeah, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, Bob Dylan, Gordon Lightfoot, and I should say that, well, 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 well Joni actually showed up with Graham Nash and um, Jackson Brown, and Jackson Brown performed as well. Graham Nash didn't. But, uh, yeah, it was... Um, and those four performers, the remarkable thing is they all ended up 
showing up uh, independent of each other. And I tried to, you know, figure out what the chain of events was, whether Neil called Joni and Joni called Bob, but, but it turned out nobody called anyone. They all just showed up. Neil had just finished uh, touring Harvest. Joni had finished touring Blue. Um, Dylan had been in hiding for 18 months after the motorcycle accident, and Lightfoot was experiencing kind of the shittiest life of the year of his life, so he wasn't around much. To, so to see those four people together it would have been stunning, astonishing for a fan to be to be in that. I remember, I remember this is like 3,000 people on a very small island, um, just off the shoreline here at the bottom of Toronto. So not a large space. Uh, uh, for those for those people, which the audience and the performers could coexist. And the photos you have in your book, writing Gordon Lightfoot, are incredible. Picturing the Mariposa '72, like a picture of Joni Mitchell, kind of peering through that little cloth or something like that towel that yeah. she's hiding backstage. Yeah, she would have been the one. Well, both her and Neil kind of kept to themselves. Um, Neil was there with Carrie Snodgrass's first wife, and she was pregnant at the time. But Neil would have kind of just, you know. But kept to himself. It was Dylan and Lightfoot who were around the most, and really, ironically, it was Dylan who was around the most. He circulated, and again, both Lightfoot and Dylan were there for about. Well, Dylan was there, from what I can understand, although there are varying accounts. But I think he was there for about a day and a half before people actually recognized him, because people just thought it's that guy who looks like Bob Dylan. Um, and same with Lightfoot when he first started to take out his guitar and play, people thought he was just a guy who was trying to pretend he was Lightfoot until people realized that he was who he was. And the organizers of Mariposa 72 had to drop Valium. There we go back to the drug thing again. Hello, Marna Snitnam. Because right. they had to deal with the stress of Bob Dylan showing up. They didn't want Dylan to play? Yeah, they didn't want Dylan to play because they were, well, I think partly they were thinking they're trying to honor the respects of their uh, organizer who wasn't there. Um, and partly they were worried that people would abandon other stages if Dylan hadn't, uh, if Dylan had played. Mind you, if Dylan had played, uh, rather, if they hadn't had those five stages, it wouldn't been, uh, there would have been no problem whatsoever. He would have just played and everybody would have seen him. But because they did these five, this five-stage thing, um, they were kind of hoist on their own petard because they had, you know, uh, because that, that ended up being the, 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 the tipping point for them to decide whether or not they uh, wanted to have him play because they didn't want audiences to leave other performers. I think, actually, there was a bit of an issue when Joni had played because people had left a set by Adam Mitchell, I think the singer of the Poppers was doing a set, and they all everybody got up to leave because Joni was playing. So, yeah, it's one of those great. This, you know, uh, I talk about that at length, I guess, in the book where they were there was huge debate about whether they should let him play and all these clandestine meetings and stuff. And Dylan at first didn't want to play, and then finally kind of went to them and said, "Hey, I'd like to play." But one of the crazy things in the book is that. Somebody told me that Dylan had kind of a weird man-child with him who did all the talking for him. Um, and some people remember this guy and some people don't, but I've never got to the bottom of who this strange man-child was and why Dylan had him with him and what his role was and what his purpose was. And in fact, when you think about this strange character, it almost seems like it's somebody who who could be conjured from a Dylan lyric, this strange, gangly man-child who did all the talking for him. Neil Young played? Yes, he played four songs. And he showed up with a pro crew? 
Yeah, apparently that's the thing. Somebody who was working side of the stage said that, um, you know, the other three performers just kind of had their guitars, but Neil actually had, like, he kind of had his rig. You know, he had, um, he had, yeah, he had techs with him, he assistants with him um, to make sure it all sounded good. So just setting the scene for the Mariposa 1972, as well as all the artists, there also were real artists, like Bill Reed was there. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing that Bill... Listen, when you think of, when you think of that weekend in Toronto and you think of Dylan Lightfoot, Joni, Neil, The Stones, Robert Frank, Truman Capote, Bill Reed, it's, it's remarkable that all of the... These are, le- these are legends in their respective fields. And they were all there that one weekend. And that's really what, it, what triggered the book or what the book became to try to understand why they were all in this one small place at, at this one time. What about the legends that stole the sailboat and went to the island? Can you tell the people about that? Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot. Yeah, that dude came to the launch. Gordon Vollmers, I, I think is his name, if I'm correct. He stole a sailboat, and him and his buddies. And we're talking, they were like 16, 17 years old. They were kids, and they sailed to the island, and it took them forever to get there. They finally ended up getting there docking at the um, the island uh, yacht club and it was the morning that they got there I guess they had sailed overnight and um, when they arrived there the first person that they saw kind of coming at them along the path was Joni Mitchell and uh, it blew their mind that you know, nobody they didn't expect her to be there and so there were all these wonderful kind of beautiful accidents that happened uh, between fans and performer at that festival Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot, can you please set this up now? Kathy Evelyn Smith, who was she? Who were her boyfriends? Yeah, Kathy Evelyn Smith was, well, I think she's probably the most famous Canadian groupie of all time, maybe the most famous ever. Um, She ended up, yeah, we kind of start to learn about her uh, when she was a teenager, um, 18, I think. She started hanging around with the band. She's coming to Toronto from Hamilton with her friends. And um, she ended up uh, giving birth to Levon Helm's love child, basically. Um, they, um, they were together. They spent many nights at the Seahorse Hotel on the lakeshore in Toronto. The band, when they were the Hawks, they would play with Ronnie Hawkins. They'd rehearse not too far from where I'm calling where we're ta- where, I, where I'm calling you from um, uh, at the Ossington and Bloor at the Concord uh, Tavern they were they would rehearse and then they would all they were all staying at the Seahorse so they'd head down to the Seahorse and um, Kathy would end up hanging out there so so she, uh, she ended up get, uh, having his child um, and then she kind of moved to Lightfoot from there and, and they had a torrid often ugly um, a relationship. They were very close and still are close. But um, and then she ended up. Uh, uh, she was she was friends with the Good Brothers too. She had, and Sundown has written about her and uh, an affair she had with one of the Good Brothers. But she ended up going to L.A. to to be with them. And then while she was there, she fell in with the Rolling Stones. And and from the Rolling Stones, she ended up getting to know John Belushi. And she was um, eventually charged with the alleged murder of uh, of John Belushi the night he died administering the speedball, so, so, so it was. Um, so she traverses uh, all of these 
incredible figures, really, in you know popular music and popular culture over the last like forty years. What's the name of her book? Because you mentioned it quite a Chase, bit in your yeah, book. Yeah, Chasing the Dragon is the name of her book. And did you think about speaking to her, or you couldn't find her? Tried to find her. She's in Ontario somewhere. Uh, the closest I got uh, was one of the Good Brothers, who told me that he would tell me, but um, he never did. And of course, if you interviewed Gordon Lightfoot, he would have told you where she is because. He knows where she is, right? Yeah, that was kind of one of the revelations in the book about, you know, um, and the way I kind of painted, and I think the salient point of this is that, you know, uh, Kathy, um, all of the people, all of the stars, I suppose, with whom she'd cavorted and been close with, really, over the years, um, have refused to kind of maintain contact with her or help her. but Lightfoot has remained sort of loyal to, to her um, and has continued to kind of help her out and be, he's been a good guy about it even though they've experienced some of the darkest times between them he's still sort of helping her out so he's just kind of being a mensch about it and that's sort of the one of the that's the way I kind of couch this kind of revelation in the book Now were the dark times something to do with Kathy Evelyn Smith charging caviar on Gordon Lightfoot's room service bill while in a room alone with John Belushi? No I think it actually I think it was Jack Nicholson I think is the is the person that um, she had Jack, when Jack Nicholson was in town filming the last detail um, he ended up uh, having an affair with Kathy Smith and um, I think that's right um, and yeah and Lightfoot uh, you know found out about this and was was pretty upset and there's a story of that I think is in the book about um, you know Dylan and the Hawks were in town, might have been Rolling Thunder, and Kathy ends up going down, and Lightfoot follows her in his car um, at the to the inn of the park where the where 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 uh, Dylan and the Hawks were staying, and um, Kathy gets in the elevator and goes up to see the band with a friend, and Lightfoot follows them, and there's this kind of madcap chase in the hotel um, between Lightfoot and. He eventually confronts her. He was very, got, became, I think Gore was kind of paranoid and neurotic about all of that after a while, you know, that she was sleeping around on him, which she was, um, but he was also unfaithful to her, but they weren't married or anything, and, you know, they were both having it, going through tough times. So, yeah, there's kind of all, there's kind of a bit of a madcap quality to that, too. In 1995, Mariposa involved me. Do you remember that at all, Dave? Oh, was that on the island as well? Yes. What happened was Mariposa wanted to get Lisa Marr from the rock and roll cuddlecore band Cub from Vancouver to do some spoken word. Not to play, but to do some spoken word. She couldn't make it, so Grant Lawrence from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, working at Mint Records at the time and also in the Smugglers, convinced Mariposa to pay to bring me, Nardwar, the human serviette, to Toronto Island to Mariposa. My big gig was going to be opening for Great Big C. Whoa. But you dodged bef- a bullet. But before that, I did a little spoken word thing at the Rivoli, and I think you were there, weren't you? I was. And it was me basically just telling stories from my radio show. And again, you're listening right now to The Nardwar, the human serviette radio show. We're speaking here to Dave Bedini, author of Gordon Lightfoot. So I'm bringing this up because then you can verify that I actually was at Mariposa, wasn't I? Uh, yes, absolutely. And you, yes. 
I had mentioned to you for years and years that I actually had a chance to speak to Gordon Lightfoot. Do you remember me telling you this? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Exchange few words with him. And for the first time, because of your book, I'm going to be able to play this live on the radio right now, Dave. Awesome. Hopefully you're going to be able to hear this. It's a brief encounter. <coughs> Excuse me. As I cough away here, no, it's not a fake encounter. It really is happening. What you're going to hear at the beginning here is you're going to hear my friend Mark Coulivan from Vancouver, who I was with, who is carrying a bunch of Gordon Lightfoot records. And then you're going to hear an encounter with Gordon Lightfoot that I had. And just as I reach over to hit play on this, and hopefully you'll be able to hear this, Dave Bedini, author yes. of Writing Gordon Lightfoot, what again can you say about Gordon Lightfoot, Kathy Evelyn Smith, and Sundown, and John Belushi? this is what I was trying to ask about. Right. The song Sundown is about, um, yeah, about uh, her s- a- sleeping with one of the good brothers, basically. So we'll find out, and we'll be able to hear this clip here. This is me, Nardward, a human serviette, approaching Gordon Lightfoot at the 1995 Mariposa Festival, asking him about stuff that, well, Dave Bedini told me about, and now you can read in the brand new book, Writing Gordon Lightfoot. So one moment, please. What should I say? What should I say? Gordy, can we ask you a question about Kathy Evelyn Smith? Just ask him. Tell him who you are. Tell him I'm Nardware the Human Serbian and I'd like to ask you a question. I'm yes, a big sir. fan of yours. I've got your first record on Chateau Records. Okay. Autographed by you, I believe. Okay. I'm a fan I'm too, Cordy. Hi. I'm Nardwar. How are you? I'm Nardwar. Hi. Um, Cordy, can I ask you a question about that well, lady? Who are you with? Oh, I'm with CITR Radio. Okay. Mr. Lightfoot, I was wondering, um, Kathy, any comment on Kathy? She lives in Vancouver now. No comment. Because I was wondering, I was wondering, the song Sundown, is it about Kathy? Mr. Lightfoot? Any comment on that? Because I was thinking, you know how John Belushi ended up being kind of injected by Kathy? Do you think that if John Belushi had listened to this song, that perhaps he would have been alive today? Because your words of wisdom sprang strong, you know, Mr. Lightfoot. Sorry, uh, maybe I can assist you here. Any, no? No comment. No, no comment? Station ID, Mr. Lightfoot? No. Station ID? Sir, I'm Barry Harvey. I'm Gordon's manager. Maybe I can assist you here. This was wondering that story. What story, sir? The Come on over here and I'll talk to you first. Okay, well, we're, we're, all, we're completely finished here anyways, but go, oh, can you finish? Oh, can we do, Mr. Lightfoot, doot, doot, do, loot, do? Can I help you find the way out? Doot, doot, loot, do? Sir, please. Doot, doot, loot, do? I know, I'm, I'm, I'm walking with you, okay. but doot, can you just, doot, 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 loot, do? Doot, doot, I'm Darlene, how you doing? Okay. <laughs> Come on, pal. <laughs> Before somebody ugly kicks you. <laughs> Oh, hello, darling. <laughs> hello, Dave Bedini. Wow. That was. I... Did you make out any of that? Yeah, I heard it all. What exactly was going on there? Darlene at the end was somebody from Mariposa was rescuing me. That was somebody friendly there. And again, my friend Mark was at the beginning. But who did I encounter there? Barry? Yeah, that's right. That's Barry Harvey. You're right. He was, uh, yeah, he was his manager. Um, he, he's the guy that we dealt with, too, in, like, 91, when we had to get permission to use a song. So, he was Gord's, yeah, you know, I mean, Gord kind of runs his own career, has run his own career, but he would have been Gord's kind of, yeah, manager at the time, for sure. Barry Harvey. He's dead now. 
very old school, wasn't he? Kind of like, could you please come over here, sir, while I want to discuss this? I know, I know, for sure. I mean, <laughs> he, uh, he didn't freak out or anything and stuff, you know, which is kind of cool, but it, that does kind of show you how, like, Lightfoot has always said that he won't, you know, he's given up the idea of writing a book uh, by himself or a book about himself because he doesn't want to have to revisit um, uh, those years that he spent with Kathy. And you are Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot on an Ardwarty Human Serviette radio show here today. And this winding up here with Dave Bedini of Writing Gordon Lightfoot. What can you tell the people about Becker's Milk? That's important, isn't it? Becker's Milk. <coughs> yeah, Becker's Milk. Uh, sure. I mean, that would have been the first time I first time I ever saw like albums for sale would have been at Becker's Milk. <coughs> it's where um, you know it's bizarre, like in the excuse me, late 60s and 70s, you'd go and go with your mom and dad to buy milk and butter and the newspaper, and right there at the cash would be album racks, you know? So as I became aware of music a little bit older, it was the first time I would have seen records by the Burrito Brothers or the Pure Prairie League or Lauren Nairo or, um, you know, Orphan and all kinds of crazy, just, just wild bands. Loud and Wainwright the Third. I remember seeing his record for the first time and thinking, what a crazy name he had. And um, yeah, so they they were because again, like record stores, kind of you could be records were everywhere, right? They were just everybody bought records, and they would have them even for sale in places like that. Have you ever met Bob Dylan, Dave Bedini? No. But your friend Dave from the Zambonis did. That's right. It's true. He, uh, well, I don't know if immediately he could say he really met him, but he was at a guest jeans convention because he, he sells clothes. And uh, Dylan and Neil Young were both playing in this guest jeans convention. And uh, he saw Bob walk past him, and he was he had a, a, the hood of his parka <clears throat> kind of um, uh, up on his face like it was... Um, like Kenny from South Park and uh, Dave said hey Bob and Bob turned around and looked at Dave and said I don't know you man second dick so uh, <laughs> that's how he met Bob Dave Bedini author of writing Gordon Lightfoot did you do a lot of surfing while reading the book because you mention Wikipedia quite often do I? yes well M- Wikipedia is mentioned a couple times in the book <laughs> okay well yeah, it's a good it's it's a good source, I suppose. Like, how do you keep yourself from not using Wikipedia or not surfing the net and actually writing quite a bit? Nah, there's not, there's not a lot of that. I think I said something about... No, I actually think what I say in that one thing is not even Wikipedia knows the date of the release of Believe in Music by K-Tel in 1972. I think that's, that's, I think that's when I mentioned Wikipedia. Oh, and I know what you're saying, too. There's a Wikipedia entry that I put there for... I believe uh, this um, track athlete, uh, this Canadian track athlete in the 1960s. I think those are the only two times. But um, I don't think I used it very much, to be honest. I guess what I meant was, when you're writing a book, how do you not go on the net and get distracted and not just keep writing? (laughs) Well, um, do you mean research-wise or just in terms of... Yeah, because there's so many names mentioned and so many things you might want to look up. You're like, I'm not sure. Well, I'll check. Well, I, you know what? Yeah, and to be honest, I, 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 I'm sort of weak in that aspect. I don't actually, like, double-check and cross-reference a lot of stuff. Like, if somebody's going to tell me a story and they're going to include, you know, an obscured, you know, like you said, Russ Gibb, 
somebody like that. I'm not going to go and just because I'm not going to go and substantiate it. If they told it, told me the story, then you know, um, I'm just going to write it as as it was as, as it was told to me. I'm not going to do a lot of not a lot of fact checking. There's some of that done um, when I, the publisher gets a manuscript, but it's. I mean, I, like you said, I'm more interested in continuing to write as, as opposed to kind of stopping that flow to to uh, to, to go down that. So, Dave Bedini, you are the author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot. You've also been in many rock and roll bands. In the Bedini band, we're in the Rio Statics, and the Rio Statics, of course, love Wendell Clark. Tell me about meeting Wendell Clark, finally. Your idol, Wendell <laughs> Clark, from the Toronto Maple Leafs, the great hockey player. You wrote a song about him, and years later, you finally meet him. Finally met him, um, that's right, in Whitehorse last, last February, actually. He ended up, uh, we were playing this Stolen from a Hockey Card concert with John Sampson and uh, C.R. <coughs> Avery and Jeff Berner and uh, Kim Barlow and uh, Sarah Harmer and, uh, anyways, yeah, Matthias Kahn, amazing, Burning Hell. Um, and we were in the uh, musician's dressing room and the hockey player players had a, their dressing room and it was, you know, our artist room and <clears throat> Wendell came and stood in the door frame. There he was, Wendell, you know. Uh, just, you know, wanted to meet him for 25 years and then he stood in the doorway and uh, I was about to tell him that, you know, he was probably my favorite athlete of all time when he said, you guys got a bathroom in here? And it was like, <clears throat> yeah, sure, we had a bathroom right, right at the back there so we went to the dressing room, went to the bathroom and Avoided his bowels for about, for about uh, ten minutes and uh, and left the room. I just don't think he wanted to use the the stall in his own uh, team's uh, in his own um, friend's dressing room. He wanted to foul ours. So yeah, that was kind of the first time I ever yeah <laughs> crossed paths with him. I, I think it meant that he he was comfortable with us. He said nothing to you, but he left something with you. Did you? <laughs> he left an odor. <laughs> True, he did. One of the worst odors you've ever smelled. Yeah, he's a hockey player, right? What can I tell you? Lastly, lastly here, Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot, I wanted to ask you about the Gatto Cox story. Because every time I interview you, I've missed out. Like, you've written, like, ten books, and I think I've only interviewed you for a couple of your yeah. books, right? Even though the last five books probably have nothing to do with the Gatto Cox story, can you please tell it again? Let the lizard out, Gatto Cox stories. Gatto gets a lot of bad rap these days, especially with the publication of punk books, where the punks don't really like Gatto. But what Gatto did was pretty punk. Can you tell the people about Gatto? Who is Gatto and the Let the Lizard Out? Let Let your lizard loose. I think was the name of the song. I believe Gatto were a, an Ontario band. Um, Scarborough band, Toronto band, um, hard rock, I guess. It's funny because they came in from a very interesting area that, era rather, that, had, that, 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 that hasn't really been explored, but it would have been between like, I want to say 75 and 79, um, would have been their heyday, right up, probably right up to 1980, but it was themselves, Max Webster, um, Wireless was another band. I would even sort of put Rough Trade into into that mix, maybe. Um, these kind of bands that you didn't really know what they were because they were, you know, they were equal parts kind of rock, pop, new wave, progressive rock, punk rock. They had 
all these really odd elements. Um, and uh, and Gato were so it's hard to kind of describe them. I guess they would have been they would never would have been um, bombastic enough to be considered metal. They didn't, they didn't really shred or anything like that. They weren't great players. But, you know, it was rock music, I suppose. Anyways, yeah, they would go to Hamilton and play. Yeah, Hamilton's classic, and it's beautiful that this happened there. But there would be a guy who would come up on stage every show and would play Gino Scarpelli's Stratocaster with his penis, basically. And he would sort of thrash the strings uh, right where the pickups are, uh, and Gino would uh, finger the, the fretboard. And Legato ended up writing a song called Let Your Lizard Loose, which was basically about this guy. He's immortalized in Gatto lore. Um, and Gatto, you know, I think he was probably uh, like a dick to a lot of punks because he was a, he thought they were kind of stealing his thunder and stuff. But um, my, this, that book on a cold road, which where Gatto figures prominently, is, is, is nominated for Canada Reads on the CBC right now, is one of the five books that Canadians are reading in advance of this debate. And, you know, Nardwar, it's like a lot of very kind of traditional, serious kind of literary, you know, folks are drawn to literature. I love, I love the fact that they're going to be reading about uh, Let Your Lizard Loose, right? And a supermodel, a supermodel is defending your yes, book, right? That's exactly, that's true. That's very true. Uh, two other Canadian rockers, Gino Vanelli and Alfie Zappacosta. What can you say about Gino Vanelli? Because he's been sampled by quite a few rappers like Ghostface Killa and MF Doom, like Gino Vanelli. Pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, Gino Vanelli, yeah, he would have been, you know, white Montreal soul, right? He that very distinct sound. Um, uh, the only thing I know about Gino, I know Gino, you know, like, uh, he's from, his family's from Guelph originally, and every time he plays in Guelph, the first two rows of the auditorium are empty up until the moment before Gino comes on, and uh, before he comes, right before the, the, the curtain comes up, his, you know, his, his, his Nona, his Nona, his grandparents, his, his cousins, his aunts, the whole family, like, Forty Italians will march into the room and end up sitting in the two rows. And once they're there, the show the show can start, but not before then. Um, and Zappacosta was actually from Etobicoke, um, which is where I grew up. And I remember kind of idolizing him and uh, and his band because he came from where you know where I came from. But I also remember Alfie Zappacosta sang the Pizza Nova theme. This is operatic for this pizza place company. And, you want to add to the people out there at all? Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot. Why should people care about writing Gordon Lightfoot? Well, you know, uh, it's just like we've been talking about. It's one of those kind of great the events that hasn't been really written before. And it's just like, I think, you know, if you're interested, it's just a, it's, it's a different way of approaching storytelling, I think, partly and stuff. So, you know, if people like my other books, I should like this, and if people haven't read me before, it's probably a good place to start, I think, in a way. I'm going to end with some more Gordon Lightfoot. going to play something from The Two Tones at the Village <laughs> Corner. Anything else you want to say about that record? That was Lightfoot's first album, really. That was the first record he was ever, he ever heard on. It's quite a bit of comedy on it, isn't it? Like a lot of spoken word. I know, it's very strange. <laughs> 
but um, yeah, that would have been a place just just in, right in, right in the city of downtown Toronto. It would have been where Ian and Sylvia got their start as well. But um, hey, it's great to finally, you know, it's great to be to be on uh, the Narva the Human or the Herman Serviette. You ever thought the Narva the Human Serviette program? Right? So I'm such you know such a such a huge fan. And, and well, Herman great. Munster, yes, all the way. Rest That's in peace. Right. Totally. Somebody said to me the other day that they thought I looked like Fred Gwynn, actually. You know what was funny? I was in St. John's, <coughs> and uh, I was outside with a bunch of kids in this band called Juicer. I had my fedora on, and they thought I looked like Vincent Price. Wow, another I compliment. Know. This is great. That's really going to inspire all your writing, too. Fred Gwynn and Vincent Price. Not bad. Well, thanks so much, Dave Bedini, author of Writing Gordon Lightfoot. Keep on... Oh, if people want to contact you, how do they contact you? Oh, geez. Well, they can email me, hockeytrope at hotmail.com, or they can go to they can go to the Bedini Band website, or they could... Ah, you know, they know where to find me, Nardwar. I'm around. Well, thanks so much, Dave. Keep on rocking in the free world, and doot-doot-a-loot-doot. This time we would like to do a love ballad, which we composed a short time ago. It's called This Is My Song.
And you're still listening to the Nordwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show on CITR FM 102, Cable 88.5, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. You just heard right there the two tones at the village corner with This Is My Song, sung by and written by Gordon Lightfoot. And before that, an interview with... Dave Bedini, all about his brand new book, Writing Gordon Lightfoot. To end the Nardwar to Human Serviette radio show right now, gonna play something by two bands that were mentioned by Dave Bedini. Gonna mention the Lords of London and gonna play their song, Cornflakes and Ice Cream. Gonna mention right now, I'm gonna play the Poppers, If I Told My Baby. But right now, here's Lords of London with cornflakes and ice cream from 1965 on the Nardwar, the Human Serviette Radio Show, FM 102, Cable 88.5, Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada.
we've all been asked the age-old question, what are you doing Saturday night? This Saturday night, Saturday, December 10th, join the CITR family for an